and welcome to a very special Ombra Gaming spoiler cast. I am one of your hosts, Manny, and I'm here with my best bud, Steve. What's going on, man? Nothing much, buddy. We got some good weather. We're finally having a full spoiler-filled discussion about God of War, and I couldn't be more excited. How are you doing on this fine Saturday? I'm doing great. I went to the gym. I had a good breakfast. I I uh, I had a couple coffees. I've had at least two. I'm ready to go. Ready to talk about Dad of Boy. I'm ready to talk about Dad of Boy. So, in case you couldn't tell, this is a very special God of War spoiler cast that we're going to be bringing to you. So, uh, Steve and I have both played God of War. We both have, as they say, rolled credits. They do um, say that. There's more to explore in the game. There's more to do after, you know, getting to the end of the story. And uh, both of us are, are doing that and we're enjoying it um, after sort of the end game stuff. But in the meantime, we wanted to talk about it. We've been really excited to talk about God of War because it is such an awesome experience. And um, we figure doing it on a spoiler cast is the best way to do it. And so goes without saying, before we go any further, if you have not played God of War and you intend to, Stop here. Turn back. Uh, if you have any plans to play the game, or I know some people are watching like entire walkthroughs of the game and sort of watching it like a movie or something, if you intend to do that, or if you're not done with it yet, don't listen to this episode. Um, finish the game and then come back and, and enjoy the conversation we have. But in the meantime, for those of you have, for those of you that have finished the game, welcome. We're excited you're with us. So I guess the way we're going to break it down, uh, we're not going to do any housekeeping. It's not going to follow this, the same format of our normal episodes. We're just going to get right into it. So we're going to start off by talking a little bit about the story um, and sort of what the narrative of the game is. Uh, we're going to then move on to mechanics, and that includes combat, navigation, um, maps, uh, you know, upgrades, weapon upgrades, armor upgrades, etc. Um, and we're going to continue talking about the story. Uh, and then... In sort of the last third of the podcast, we're going to talk about how everything sort of wraps up um, and where it leaves us at the end of the game. So let's get started. So God of War puts us in control of, of course, Kratos. Um, and he is an older, wiser, bearded Kratos. And he has a son now. So his son, Atreus, is joining him for a little adventure. Um, and so, Steve, why don't you sort of set the scene of what this, uh, what this adventure entails? So it starts off simple enough where... Atreus' mother and Kratos' wife, Faye, has passed away, and her last wishes were to have her ashes scattered in the highest peak of Midgard. Well, basically the highest peak in all the realms, and yeah. then as we'll go, the story unfolds. It's not quite you, what you think. But it really starts off as just a simple journey of father and son, and there's a lot of implications at first um, where Kratos keeps wondering if the boy's ready, and boy is a, a common theme throughout so it's implied basically that Atreus was overcome with some type of sickness. It's never really um, discussed what type of sickness he actually has. But you're led, led to believe basically that Kratos is very worried about this journey. He doesn't think Atreus is ready. So that's really setting the stage where it's going to be a learning experience between Kratos and Atreus. And it's going to be a bonding experience between those two as they really carry out a very simple request. Their mother and wife's dying wish. Um, right. So that's why I think the game works so well, because it really is just something that, you know, everyone can relate to. I'm sure we've all had a family member who had passed away at some point, and they have some type of request um, as their, their last dying wish. Um, and you as family members, due to the loyalty and just the love you have, 
you'll do whatever you can to make sure that dying wish is carried out to its fullest extent. And so, just starting off with such a simple journey, it's such a 180 from the rest of the series because everything about it has just been a senseless journey of vengeance from Kratos. Where right. Basically, he's just looking to destroy every single god that he could possibly get his hands on. And now, all he's trying to do is honor his late wife, um, he's trying to honor Atreus' mother, and he's actually trying to build a bond with his son. Um, so right off the bat, you're kind of put in that situation where you're like, oh my god, I actually can relate to Kratos here. I've never been able to do that. Right. And um, it's interesting, I think the the opening setting and sort of the exposition of how this whole journey is set up, the very first thing you do is cut down a tree. Um, and so you're using the Leviathan Axe, which is Kratos' primary weapon in the game, um, for most of it at least. And you're chopping down a tree, and it's it's the, the pacing is very intentional. It's not a hectic God of War chop. It's, you you know, I think it's X or whatever. You, you press the button, he chops, he winds up, you press it again. And it's this, like, very intentionally paced opening to the game. Mm-hmm. And I think it really sets a tone for the rest of the game. Um, so you, you chop down this tree, you carry it on your shoulder... You attach it to a canoe, and you and, and Atreus sort of canoe back to um, your home, where you use that tree to essentially build a pyre to place Faye on um, and, and essentially cremate her. Um, and that's sort of the opening of the game. So you do that. There's some brief conversation. Obviously, Atreus is, Atreus is um, introduced to you as Kratos' son. Um, he's lighting candles around Faye's body. You know, so you both place Faye on the pyre. You, you light it. And uh, essentially, as she's being cremated, um, Atreus runs towards, you know, runs towards her burning body and grabs what you learn is her knife. Um, and, it, and it sort of, I feel like that also sets the tone for the relationship they have because Kratos, he doesn't address what Atreus did in like a loving way. He addresses it as a responsibility. He's yep. like, this, this was your mother's knife. Now it is yours, right? And so he's placing a burden on him almost, right? Um, and so it's this really interesting opening to the relationship where we would hope that he is trying to develop a relationship with his son, but he's pretty bad at it, especially um, at the beginning of the game, because he seems like he's kind of new to being a dad, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, his his last kid he killed, so... Right. <laughs> and especially without having, you know, what is stereotypically, you know, the love and, and warmth of a mother, um, he seems to have a very difficult time relating to his son and you know, expressing warmth and love. So um, that's sort of the opening of the game. Um, and they're sort of in this hut in the woods, um, this like really small, like sort of almost a, a small log cabin. Yeah. And Kratos, after cremating Faye, Kratos takes a small pouch, puts some of her ashes in the pouch, um, and then they both go inside. Um, after some time and, and some conversations about um, what it means to be ready for this, you know, this journey and, and, um, they, they talk, you know, Kratos puts his hands up and has Atreus, you know, throw some punches and, you know, some almost stereotypical father-son combat training. Yeah. <laughs> Too slow, boy. Yeah. There is a, a knock at the door and we are introduced to the stranger um, and there's a, a skinny, tattooed, bearded man at the door. Um, and he's saying to Kratos, uh, I think you know what I want. And Kratos seems to have no idea who this man is. And, and we, as the players, also have no no idea. And then uh, you get introduced to the combat. And it was <laughs> that scene was one of the most intense and amazing combat 
experiences I've had in a video game because it ramps up so fluidly, I will say, from zero to 60. Yep. Um, and, you know, Kratos threatens him a few times saying, leave essentially before I hurt you. You don't want this. You don't want none of these hands. You so don't want to get these hands. Yeah. And the guy doesn't back down. Um, and then Kratos throws a couple punches uh, and it's clear that he's at least in that in that first you know couple opening blows it's clear that Kratos is stronger and more powerful than this individual until uh, the stranger says something along the lines of okay now it's my turn and he swings back and punches Kratos straight in the chest and Kratos yeah. goes flying and it's that first like oh fuck yeah moment. that was when the game basically figuratively and literally just punches you right in the mouth and you're like yeah. alright this is God of War like this is yeah. exactly what I remember and right from the the get-go, you're basically, like, getting this, what could be an endgame boss fight right at the beginning. It's like, oh my god, yeah. what else is to come after, like, how could you possibly top this? And then the game does top it. That's what's magnificent, is because that yeah. fight could easily be an ending fight in any other type of game, that you know, combat-related game, of course. Um, and that's just the prologue, basically. Like, this is right. the beginning of the journey. And then you, you're left with so many questions. First, like... Who is the stranger? What does he want? How does he even know who I am? Because obviously Kratos has been living there for years. He's been lo right. there long enough to at least have Atreus, who's, what, like 10 years old, maybe? 11 years old? Yeah. I think um, Cory Barlog hasn't really confirmed the age of Atreus, but he has said that the actor who plays Atreus, whose I think his first name was Sonny, I forget yep. his last name, um, he was nine when he was hired yeah. to play Atreus. So that sort of gives you a ballpark. And so, you know, Kratos has been there for that long without anybody knowing who he is. So you're all you're automatically just overcome with a bunch of questions as to, you know, who is this? Like, why was he sent there? And like he mentions, he doesn't even at that point, like he, he hasn't mentioned Odin or anything. He hasn't mentioned like even a semblance of who he is. I remember actually when I was streaming it, um, Matt was in the chat and he was questioning whether or not he was Loki. And like at the time, yeah. because I know that's actually that was actually a popular theory online as well, um, because at the time you could see like, well, he has some similar traits, and then right. you come to find out as the game progresses that he's actually Baldor. And let me tell you, I did not know a lot about Baldor, or you know, a lot about Norse mythology. But after I beat this game, I read so much goddamn Norse mythology yeah, articles. Yeah, it's true. Same. It's, it's out of this world. Yeah. So let's let's back up to the fight a little bit. So you're fighting who you, like Steve said, later discovers Baldur, um, who we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, one of his things, his shtick, is that he cannot feel. Um, yep. And you learn, you learn why later in the game, but for now, he tells you, I can't feel anything, I can't feel pain, this doesn't feel, uh, this doesn't hurt me at all. And he's saying all these things while you're bashing his face in and smashing him against rocks. And so the combat is so intense in this fight, and it's clear that Kratos is really be, being given... A run for his money and this is actually a pretty good segue so we'll start to talk about some of the combat mechanics here um, because this is the first time you experience them um, so you have the leviathan axe which like i said is your primary weapon for most of the game and it's the coolest thing right so you can you have uh, light attacks and heavy attacks uh, both while having it in your hand um, and then you also have the ability to throw it so there's a really fluid and like very accurate mechanic where you can aim using the left trigger um, and throw the axe, you know, release the axe using the right trigger. And, you know, obviously hitting different body parts results in different damage and, and different kinds of reactions from the enemies you're fighting, depending on who they are. 
but probably the coolest part about the Leviathan Axe is that you can call it back, um, similar to like Thor with his hammer, if you think about like the Marvel movies, right? So you can call it back, and, and that is just the most satisfying thing. Being able to throw something with such power, and then to see Kratos just hold his hand out, and for it to come spinning back, and the sound, and the vibration, and just everything about the execution of the recall is incredibly done. Yeah, one of the most satisfying things you could do is if you had like enemies lined up and you purposely throw it past them to hit a wall and then yep. call it back so it just rips through all of them. Yeah, you could do recall attacks. You could actually hurl it at an enemy with the R2 and you could freeze them in place while you go beat the hell out of the other enemies with your bare hands. Yeah. And at first you're wondering like, all right, well, why would I ever do bare hand in combat when I could have the axe? Early on in the game, you're introduced to enemies that the axe doesn't work on, so you have to use bare right. hand combat. But it doesn't feel like you're missing anything when you're using Kratos' yeah. bare fists. Because Agreed. he is just as powerful um, without a weapon as he is with one. Um, so I yeah. love the way that they did that, where you never really felt like you were slighted. Like, oh, man, I, like how am I going to take out this horde of enemies that the axe doesn't work on? It's, it's a useless weapon. But the, the shield attacks are great. Blocking, I yeah. will say, because I'm not a big blocker. So I needed to kind of condition myself to get into that. I'm much more of like a just go in swinging. Uh, but they really make it so you have a benefit of using the shield. Not just For in sure. blocking, but you can use it as an attack too, which is fantastic. Yeah, because that is a new mechanic using a shield uh, yeah, for God is. of War and so yeah it's a really interesting use of, of a shield so it essentially it it kind of collapses in on itself on this sort of big I don't know gauntlet that mm -hmm. um or I guess what are those things yeah a gauntlet yeah it'd be a gauntlet that Kratos has on his forearm and then when he goes to use it it sort of spins out and expands into a shield um, and so he can shield bash he can block he can also parry which I found incredibly useful yeah um, because it kind of slows down time and gives you an opportunity to attack um, in response um, and so in that first fight you're using all of these things and even from the beginning for a combat system that is complex it's not overwhelming and it feels very fluid and I think that's the mark of good combat because if, if you're giving me a lot to work with but at the same time I don't feel overwhelmed by the amount you're giving me then like you hit that kind of perfect stride you hit that like mark where I feel empowered, but I also feel like I, I could learn more. Um, mm -hmm. And so in this fight with Baldur, you're throwing everything but the kitchen sink at the guy, right? And it's incredibly frustrating because he can't feel anything. And then, worth mentioning, uh, God of War is entirely done in one cinematic shot. So there's no yeah. cuts, there's no uh, loading screens, unless, of course, you know you die or something. Um, there's no changes in... The, the fluidity of the camera. So all of this is done in one shot. And the the fight against Baldur, it's really intense because the the combat is broken up by cutscenes. But the cutscenes, because there's no cutting of the camera, it feels like it's all part of just one event, right? And so um, you'll be fighting and then suddenly you realize that you don't have control over Kratos anymore because it's a cutscene and yeah. Kratos is picking him up, bashing him into a, a rock, and then taking a tree and bashing him into the rock again using the tree you know what i mean so it's like these huge cinematic cutscenes where it just feels so fluid um all the while boulder's telling you that he doesn't feel anything and it's really frustrating um and he's beating the shit out of kratos kratos is bleeding kratos is injured and he's and he's hurt they go back and forth you think you put him away a couple times but he, he comes back and then it kind of ends with kratos coming up behind baldor uh putting him in a headlock and essentially sap, snapping his neck and pushing him off a cliff. Uh, a cliff. A cliff. 
a cleft. <laughs> he pushed him off um, a cleft lip. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, you realize that you've strayed very far from the cabin. And so you have to walk back to the cabin and you can't sprint. You can't, you can't even run. And so Kratos is breathing really heavily and he's like walking back to uh, the cabin where, where he, where Atreus is hiding under the floorboards and you're seeing all the damage you did. You you've done with the fight uh, against Baldur. There's trees missing. There's rocks that are completely split in half. There's giant fissures in the ground. Um, And then you get back and, and Atreus is like, who was that guy? Where nobody is, what does he want from us? Like, who who is he, and why does he why is he trying to attack us? And that kind of sets the groundwork for a really important theme between Kratos and Atreus, because Atreus apparently, you learn at this scene, doesn't know who Kratos is. He doesn't know his past. He doesn't know that he's a god. He doesn't know his his actions and his yeah, he motivations. He has no idea that he literally tore down Olympus. Exactly. He just takes at face value that Kratos is this pasty white dude with red paint all over his body and who can pick up trees essentially kratos says i don't know who that guy was i don't know what he wants but we have a journey let's go and that kind of starts the journey off um and you go on this magical adventure (laughs) with with your son and let's talk a little bit more about sort of like the navigation and, and the mapping from here so um you open up your map and you see that you have access to a small portion of it. You can zoom yeah. out, but everything is sort of shrouded in fog or clouds. And so, you know, that tells you that there's more to discover. Um, and it's pretty clear that this game isn't an open world game. You know, right from the beginning, if yeah. you try to go certain places, you can't access. Well, yeah, because I, I love how they incorporated the fast travel with it where they do give it to you. But while you're playing the main story, you really can only fast travel to Brock's shop in the, in the realm room. Um, yep, yep. It's not until that you uh, actually beat the, the main story that it opens up all the other mystic gateways that are your fast travel options. So I do enjoy that, where they do give you the option to explore the open world, but you have to actually explore it until you beat the game. Um, so right. it, it almost serves two purposes where they're trying to steer you to complete the, the linear story. Uh, while also giving you that option to, you know, explore all the Lake of Nine has to offer, which is a nice trophy that I've acquired. It's a very good one. Um, so you go around the Lake of Nine, you explore all that, but that's the beauty of it is you can't just fast travel around and be like, oh, I want to go back there and see what I missed over there. You can't do that to the end of the game. So mm-hmm. until you actually finish the actual main story, you have to do all the exploring yourself. So Corey Barlog and his team did a great job of giving you freedom while also directing you to the main mission. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that, like, the fact that it almost feels like an open-world game, I think says a lot about how they built that um, world, how the, how each world kind of flows into the other. It gives you enough outlets to explore and to find little Easter eggs and puzzles and all that. Because, the you know, puzzles have always been a part of the God of War games, and so they wanted to keep that sort of essence of what progression feels like in God of War. But they didn't want to just blow the doors open and give you an entire world because that's that would be too much right it'd be be sensory overload yeah they do a good job at keeping the rails on you while giving you enough to feel like there's a whole world out there um so one of the things steve mentioned is the lake of nine the lake of nine is, is sort of a hub world that serves as like the central point between worlds between um, realms and, and different parts of each of those realms. So from the very beginning, you see a mountain in Midgard, which in Norse mythology is, is just Earth. Um, and you see this gigantic mountain and you're like, that's the mountain. We're going to spread the ashes there. That's what she wanted. 
you uh, you meet new characters. Um, Steve mentioned Brock. Um, he's one of the <laughs> Brock and Sindri. he's one of the uh, what are they called? They're the the dwarves. Yeah, so they're dwarven weaponsmiths, and he's kind of this plucky, brash, uh, blue-skinned dwarf uh, who has kind of a foul mouth. But um, you meet him on a bridge where his sort of cattle it's like this big animal is stuck and um won't move and he's trying to push it along um and then atreus sort of magically figures out how to get it get it moving and and we'll circle back to that later and as to why and how he did it but um you know you kind of help rock out get his cattle moving and you get he gets to where he wants to go but then he notices the leviathan axe and he says where did you get that axe um and you know kratos being kratos kind of shrugs him off and says look dude like you're not part of our story here we don't you're you know we don't need to help you you don't need to bother us we got we got something to do and brock essentially says i i made that axe uh and i gave it to somebody very special didn't so, make it for you exactly and so um that obviously catches kratos's attention um you learn a little bit more about Faye and how she was you know a fierce a fierce warrior and uh she was kind of beloved by everybody and so uh, Brock serves as the first person that that introduces upgrades and weapon upgrades, armor upgrades, and he has a crafting system as well. So you can upgrade the Leviathan axe using what are called frozen flames, which is essentially just uh, almost like a gem that you that you can exhaust to upgrade it. Um, you can craft new armor using resources. You can upgrade your armor. You can upgrade um, the armor and the talon, bow, and arrow that um, Atreus uses as well. So it's kind of up to you um, how you want to upgrade things, and uh, it's never really static. You can kind of switch things out depending on what kind of enemies you encounter, depending on what kind of um, you know build you want to approach them with. So it, it kind of just depends on what you want to do. How did you feel about just uh, the rank-up system overall? Did you feel that um, it was in-depth enough without getting too complex and do you feel like there were enough options given to players to actually mix and match i think so yeah i i, I didn't find myself feeling too overwhelmed which again i think strikes that balance that we talked about earlier of like it gives you enough to feel like there's there's a lot of options between yeah. the just straight up upgrades between um the different stats so there's things like attack defense um runic vitality yeah. runic um, and cooldown became um became huge for me yeah. as i got towards the end game and especially now that i'm in like in the end game portion where i'm doing all the extra stuff i use runic attacks every single time i fight but i'll max out both my light and my heavy runic attacks as often as i possibly can and yeah it cleans up some of these higher level enemies um so easily yep. yeah for sure and so runic attacks are especially are, are essentially special attacks where um, whether it's like jump in the air, kind of do like a 180 with your axe behind your back and slam yeah. it on the ground and ice shoots everywhere. There's some really fucking cool ones. <laughs> yeah, there's all these different attacks that are that are beautifully animated and are executed so flawlessly. Um, and then there's essentially a cooldown of each of those. So, yeah. you know, you can kind of mix it up between your light, heavy attacks, throwing your axe, doing a runic attack, waiting for the cooldown and, and sort of you know, executing these combinations of moves that will give you an advantage. Um, I've, I've compared it before to um, sort of the Arkham style, where, like, the combat's very fluid, and you can kind of pivot from one enemy to another, um, and then mixing it with, like, Dark Souls almost, where you can think about when you want to parry, when you want to start a combo, yeah. when you want to, you know, focus on one enemy. Um, and so there's it's, it's a great combat system. I enjoyed it a lot, and I think the upgrades and different kinds of attacks play into it really well. One of the, one of the best parts uh, about the combat system 
that stuck out to me was it, it kind of lent itself to user-created combat, uh, excuse me, user-created combinations as opposed to just those static, like, hit circle three times, then hit triangle, and then there you go, you get a nice yeah. super heavy attack. Which is where, like, God of War came from, right? Like, circle, circle, square. Yep. It was, you know, light, light, heavy, boom. And this God mm-hmm. of War still definitely has some of those elements. Like, as you upgrade your attacks, you'll notice, um, because there's a different upgrade system with um, XP points that you earn through battles and through mission completion. And so, with those XP points, you upgrade the attacks that you can do, and you'll notice that there are a lot of those. You hit R1 twice and then hit R2 to finish him up with a, a vicious heavy slam or something like that. So they do still have those. Yeah. But the just the unlimited options that you have in combat like at the end of the game i was doing stuff that i wasn't doing you know in the middle of the campaign and so it, it reminded me a lot of horizon in that sense where you can put you know 30 40 hours into the game and still find new ways to defeat enemies via combat which is really cool that they give you all those options and it never got stale like i never got bored yeah. with the combat even when i was doing um, we'll talk a little bit about this as we talk more about the story but uh, muspelheim that realm it's basically just a never-ending battle arena where you're constantly doing combat yeah. missions, and it was a blast. Like, I never got sick of it. Yeah, same, same. And I think that's, again, like, it's striking such a good balance in all these different systems where you don't feel tired of combat, even though, especially in the earlier game, you know, earlier portions of the game, you only have a certain set of moves to work with. And obviously that expands as the game goes on, but it's great. It's very refined, I'll say. Yeah. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention how vital Atreus is to the combat. Because I, sure. I'll admit, I was very skeptical at first when I found out it was R1 and R2 heavy for the combat. I, I really didn't see yeah. how that would go well with God of War just based off of its past. And then it made total sense once you realized that you have to hit square for Atreus to fire his arrows. Because the just the mold of your right, hand of right. R1 and R2 and then using thumb to hit square, absolutely perfect. It's so fluid. You need yeah. Atreus. You need a just hammer that square button (laughs) yeah and so he can shoot arrows um you can shoot two different kinds of arrows in the earlier portions of the game and basically he has i guess runic attacks as well right like he can uh sort of spawn these uh i was a big fan of the wolves the wolves were great i see even after i've unlocked all the other ones i still use the wolves because i've maxed that out yeah and you can get like four wolves just attacking the shit out of people (laughs) yeah by the end of the game i think i had six um and and like every every encounter was at least halved when I just the first thing that's the first thing I would do. Did you see the the squirrel one? Like it's just a, a squirrel yeah. that finds health stones for you. <laughs> yeah, and he he has like a little like Scottish accent or something, yeah. like Australian or something. And he like he like rustles around and finds you like health gems and stuff. Yeah, um, and there was one that I thought looked really cool but wasn't incredibly practical. It was essentially a huge stag that walks very slowly through the crowd. And, yeah. like, fires off, like, beams of light in yeah. all these different directions. I saw that one. I didn't use that one because I was like, I don't... When I first looked at it, I was like, so he just fucking walks? Like, what, what's happening here? Yeah. And then the yeah. other one that kind of interested me was the boars. Just the stampeding boars. The only thing yeah. that drew me away from it was that it's just a straight line. Whereas the wolves will just right. straight up attack anything that moves. It's fantastic. Yep. yep. But that was... um. That was one of the reasons why, early on, I was ranking up Atreus more than I was ranking up Kratos. Because I was like, I use him in every single fight, and he's so vital that I want to make sure I max him out as soon as possible. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, there's all these systems and mechanics working in tandem, and it and it plays off really, really well. Um, so you continue this journey um, around where, you're, around where you um, find the Lake of Nine and start to explore it. You are introduced to new characters, right? So like we mentioned, there's Brock. 
Um, there's also the World Serpent, which oh, yeah. uh, is this amazing, beautiful character. It's it's called the World Serpent because it's so big that it encompasses the world. It encompasses mm-hmm. Midgard uh, and bites its own tail. You get to the Lake of Nine and you're sort of canoeing around the lake, which is massive, and you see these mountains sort of surrounding it. Um, but then you also see like it's very obvious from the beginning you see a coil of what looks like a gigantic serpent um and then at one point it rears its head from behind a mound and it takes up most of your screen it's gigantic um fortunately it's friendly it kind of helps you uh from the beginning and um it also does something really cool i thought which was um you know obviously with its movement it changes the level of water in the lake and so the, the water level lowers and opens up the lake even more. That just added to how perfectly they designed the levels um, because everything made sense. The way the world opened up to give you more exploration options, it wasn't just like, okay, now you can go do that. It, it, it literally made sense to the story why you were able to now go to these places. So again, I, I, yeah. like we say it's a masterpiece and every little piece you start to unfold, you realize that this game really was just... I, I guess you can't really say perfect, but you, you can almost make a case like this could be as close to perfect of a game as you can get for sure and so uh yeah the serpent speaks in this like ancient tongue um and and it's like this booming vibrating voice and he speaks very slowly um and uh atreus seems to understand him Mm -hmm. right off the right off the bat um and sort of continuing that theme of like atreus can kind of sense what these creatures are saying and what they're feeling and how to how to empathize and communicate with them um which we will continue to talk about as we as we go on here but um you're also introduced to freya she was a great character yeah in norse mythology she is one of the wives of odin um she's sort of one of the queens sort of of the of the gods um and so she helps you from pretty much from the start um she points you in the directions that you need to go she provides a lot of sort of uh helpful context around the the, the mythos and the world that is Midgard and how it interacts with the other worlds. Um, she also lives in a turtle. Yeah, she lives underneath a turtle. Uh, I forget what the turtle's name is, but she was like, I was looking for a home, and he said I could live under him, and I would protect him. That's our deal. Turtles are great landlords. Yeah, they're low rent, <laughs> pretty low maintenance. Um, and she kind of int- also introduces the concept of moving between realms. And so you continue the journey, uh, all the while learning these new moves. Um, there's also, you know, the puzzles, which is, again is a classic God of War yeah. element. A lot of them you interact with using your axe. So there are little spinny things or doors that you need to open. Um, and, you know, for example, there will be some where there's a giant uh, gate in front of a chest you want to open. Um, and you need to throw your axe to hit a specific thing, a specific spin wheel that opens the gate. But then the gate will drop back down, right? And so what you need to do is not only hit that thing that opens the gate, but then find a cog that the gate, that the gate is attached to and throw your axe at it, at it so it freezes the cog in place. Then yep. you can go access the chest and get whatever's inside. Um, there are others where in order to open chests that are, that are just, you know, open, that are sort of just there from the beginning with nothing in front of them, um, you need to ring three bells, and you need to make sure they're all ringing at the same time to, yeah, to access them. Some of those them. were a real pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, some. They, I mean, most of them were, but it felt so cool to be like, oh shit, I need to ring them and make sure they're all ringing at the same time, yep. or I need to uh, ring them, and then every time I ring this bell, one of these runes on the chest will turn sideways, and I need to make sure they're all sideways and facing the right. So like, there's so many puzzles that, again, such a big part of 
a good game for me is like I always say respecting the player and and not spoon feeding me not holding my hand through these puzzles and so like this game does a great job at being like you're gonna figure it out and it's gonna suck and it's gonna yeah. be a pain in the ass but you'll get there there was one in you know? particular I remember on uh, the lake of nine it's just on like one little island and basically the island has two boat docking stations one in the front one in the back and there, it was the one where you have to ring three of them. One of them is like embedded in a bunch of stones, so when you hit it, it only rings for a short amount of time. The other one's wide out in the open. And yep. the third one is behind um, basically a, a gate that is raised right now, so you can't hit it. And so if you just park in the front dock station, if you go through the gate and then raise the gate, you can't get back to your boat and you can't hit all three. So what you have to do is bring your boat all the way to the back lower the gate go back in the boat go all the way to the front and then you do the puzzle and I, it took me like a little bit to figure it out I was like mother fucker yeah. I was like I could have done this yeah. 15 yeah. minutes ago and been all set yeah exactly but like you know there could be really good loot in yeah, that chest so it does a good job at sort of baiting you to invest time in, into um, into these like puzzles and so you continue on um, you actually also end up meeting uh, Brock's brother who's Sindri who um, is another troll he's a germaphobe he's another weaponsmith um, and he also kind of does the same thing he recognizes the axe and every time you know one of them looks at it he's like why did you let my brother work on your axe I'm better than him and they kind of have like this sibling rivalry type of thing um, and he also does the exact same things as Brock he upgrades your your weapons and, and armor and gear and so you continue sort of advancing all the while looking up at the mountain and saying that's the peak we're gonna get there that's it um and then so you know after all of these challenges of which there are many um the the scale of the boss fights are gigantic I mean there's trolls bashing you with gigantic stone pillars um there's these creatures called ancients um that have like a gaping hole in their chest that you have to use range attacks to beat um, there's all these different kinds of creatures that you, it's really about adapting and learning movesets and understanding what they're vulnerable to and what they're invulnerable to. Um, so you eventually get to what you think is the summit of the mountain, right? So you're climbing up this mountain, you finally get there. And just as you're creeping up to the top, you hear the voice of the stranger, Balder. That son of a bitch. Um, that son of a bitch. You hear the voice of Balder, um, and you sort of creep up to the edge of where they're talking um, and you see Balder there with Thor's sons, Magni and Modi. Um, and they're talking to this man that's sort of uh, trapped in a tree. Um, and so again, all using one camera angle, the camera kind of pans up to the top of this summit um, and they're sort of threatening this man in the tree. Uh, and he has, he's really interestingly designed um, and I'm sure the inspiration comes from North mythology. Uh, he has horns, he has tattoos around his head, uh, and he has one eye that's sort of shimmering. Thick Scottish accent and a beard. Um, and he's sort of tangled up in the roots and branches of the tree um, such that he can't move. Yeah. Uh, they're threatening him, saying, tell us where they are, uh, obviously referring to Kratos and Atreus, um, and, you know, we'll take out your other eye, etc., etc., etc. He doesn't give up any, any information because he doesn't have it, um, and then they sort of walk away. Kratos and Atreus then get to the top and they confront this man in the tree and he introduces himself as Mimir, the smartest man in all the realms. Been blessed with the sight from the giants. Exactly. Yeah, so he's been, uh, he has the gift of sight and so he was blessed by uh, the Jotun or the giants of, of Norse mythology who live in Jotunheim with the ability to see all things. And so he kind of has all the answers and he has all the visions and he knows 
he pretty much knows everything there is to know. Um, and he, he's been stuck in this tree for, I forget what he references, but he says like hundreds of years or something. And so he's like, oh, you must be the guys that, that they were looking for. And, and essentially Atreus, who is, you know, plucky and, and more fun-loving than his dad, sort of spills the beans immediately and is like, yeah, we're on this mission. <laughs> we're going to go spread our mother's ashes on the top, you know, the highest mountain in all the realms. And it's right here. Um, and Mir says, you're wrong. It's, it's not there. Um, it's in Jotunheim. And he uses his eye to sort of open a vision where you see um, the, the highest peak in all the realms. And then it turns out that they have essentially like half the journey to go still. Um, and Mimir offers help. He says, I, I can help you get there. Uh, you got to cut my head off and I, I'm going to come with you. And so uh, Kratos cuts his head off, attaches it to his belt, and they're on their way. And, and the, the journey continues. He so lovingly presents the severed head to Freya. <laughs> He's like, bring this back to life, woman. Yeah, and so, yeah, Mimir says, uh, you gotta cut off my head, and then Freya has to reanimate it. <laughs> she uh, which does. she does a little bit begrudgingly. Um, and then, uh, it's interesting, I've heard these these interviews with Cory Barlog where he says uh, initially Mimir was gonna be sort of in a bag, like a fanny pack, and they were gonna take him out whenever he wanted to speak. Um, but he kept, I guess Cory Barlog kept mentioning it, uh, it at you know meetings and, and different planning sessions but sort of in passing and then he's he's he talked about it so much that it just became the norm and so he would be like yeah maybe we'll use mimir uh maybe we'll attach it to kratos hip. but anyway we can talk about something else and he did that so many times that it just became the truth and they essentially designed it um so he like tricked uh you know his developers to do that which i thought was really <laughs> cool um but yeah, Mimir becomes like the third wheel to the relationship between you and, yeah. and Atreus. Um, he's like a guide. He offers context about lore. Um, you know, whenever you're whenever you're canoeing around the Lake of Nine, it triggers these conversations between Atreus and Kratos. And then once Mimir is introduced, it triggers like story time with Mimir, where he talks about all these beautiful sagas of the gods and the lore of, of Norse mythology, which I, th I thought was amazing. Like, he just fits that dynamic yeah, so perfectly. Yeah, because one of the things with the, the one-shot camera angle that they work with, um, obviously when you go that route, you're going for a fully immersive experience, so they don't want to overload you with cutscenes, so they do a fantastic job of filling in all that dialogue just in those moments when you are in the boat, when you're sailing around the Lake of Nine. That, those are the times where you're actually going to learn about the history of the world and you're going to get more story context. There still are amazing cutscenes and I feel like there was a perfect balance of cutscenes um, for this type of game. But I found most of my learning came from those moments on the boat, whether it's with Kratos and Atreus and Atreus educating Kratos on stories that um, Faye had told him. Or once you get Mimir, that's when the storytelling really ramps up. And even after the game is over, I'm still finding new story elements that Mimir is telling me um, well after I've rolled credits on the game. So I think that's a fantastic job. And I think he became the perfect little third wheel for those two because there needed to be an additional like sense of for humor sure. to lighten the tension. Because a lot of times on that boat, it's like Atreus telling some great story and Kratos just be like, Silence, boy. There's enemies afoot. It's like, all right, man. Can't you just be like, it was a good story, son? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. He kind of comes with you on this journey, and he becomes this really integral part of the relationship, really. Um, he becomes like almost a mentor, like a, a parenting mentor to Kratos, and just like a friendly voice for, for Atreus to sort of break up the uh, intensity and sort of solemn vibe that, that Kratos sort of creates for them. Um, 
So you continue on this journey. Now your goal is to get to Jotunheim, uh, and that involves, there's a lot of traveling between realms. Um, you go to Alfheim, where the elves are, um, so there's, and you're, you're sort of introduced into this war between the dark elves and the light elves, and, and you kind of just become a pawn in this war, because your goal is to just get this one thing and, and get out, you know, so when you're traveling to all these realms, you always have this sort of goal, and I compare it to the classic Mario, like, your princess is in another, is in another castle mechanic, right? You, yep. you keep thinking you're getting to that top of the peak, and then, oh, it turns out we have to go to Jotunheim, or oh, in order to get to Jotunheim, we need this thing that's in that other realm, so it's this kind of, like, um, it's a shuffle cup game, if you will, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I can see that. At this point of the story, you realize, you discover that you need to go to Helheim, um, which is essentially hell, where the dead go to be judged if they don't if they don't make it to Valhalla. And the reason yeah. uh, you go there is because um, there is this encounter between um, you and Atreus and some enemies, and essentially you're uh, being threatened by... Um, was it Baldur or was it the Suns? Yeah, you're threatened by uh, Modi and Magni. Yeah, so there's this really intense battle between uh, Modi and Magni, and it's it's mechanically really challenging, very hard battle, um, pretty tough, and I died a lot in that fight. But um, you kill, I think, uh, Magni, right? Yeah, you kill yeah, Magni. Yeah, so you kill Magni, and you're um, essentially being held by the neck. You're in some trouble with, with Modi. Um and Atreus, seeing this, he gets really angry. Um, and and so, as context, there's actually another piece of combat uh, for Kratos called the Spartan Rage. And so, when you fill up this meter, you click both sticks, and it and it triggers what's called Spartan Rage, which is another sort of form of combat where you have unique attacks. Um, your damage is increased. Your uh, the damage you take is d- decreased. Um, and you can do these amazing attacks like jumping in the air and slamming on the ground or picking up rocks from the earth and throwing it at enemies. Um, and so and so basically, he, he seemingly tries to trigger his own version of Spartan Rage. He, um, he says, you know, let go of my father or something like that. And he kind of tries to attack uh, Modai. And he yells really loudly and you kind of see a spark um, across his body. Um, and then suddenly he goes pale, his eyes close and he, and he hits the ground. Um, and you realize that it's that sickness coming back, and it, and it has kind of won for now. Um, and seeing that his son is in danger, Kratos, you know, he triggers his own Spartan rage, essentially shakes Modai off, who runs away, and takes his son to Freya, saying, you know, help my son. Like, you're essentially a witch. You, you, you can help me. Um, tell me how. And she tells him that you need to go to Helheim. Um, before you do, she says, your frost axe, the Leviathan axe, will do no good there. So... That kind of is a turning point in the game, and that is because... Yeah, that little tease, because you're like, ah, am I going to have to use my fists this whole fucking exactly. time? Exactly. And then you start getting the tease, and you start getting real excited. Yeah, and that's because Kratos kind of looks at his forearms, <laughs> foreshadowing the future, uh, turns to Freya and says, then I must return home. Uh, and I think he says, and face my past or something. And you kind of get the sense that something big is happening. So he gets in a canoe. Um, she says, take the, take the boat behind my house. It'll take you straight back to your, to your home, which is, you know, the log happened from the beginning of the game. And there's this beautifully orchestrated scene that um, you're in this boat and it's essentially just you, the player at Kratos and it's stormy outside and it's dark and it's raining. Um, and it's this really dark night and you're on this canoe and 
you get the sense that Kratos is really coming to terms with his past, which is very violent and vengeful and angry. Um, a past yeah. that he has been trying to leave behind, right? Um, and for a moment, you see Athena on the boat, um, and she doesn't really say a word at first. Um, and he says, Athena, get out of my head. In this, like, the most graveliest of gravelly voices. Um, yeah, Christopher Judge did a fantastic oh, incredible. job yeah. voice acting this whole game. And so he gets back to his cabin. He tears open the floorboards, and he takes out uh, the Blades of Chaos. Yeah, I was so excited. Yeah, which, uh, and it's funny, you, you, you got to this point a little bit before me, and you were like, dude, there's something, but I won't tell you, but it's something, and it's coming. <laughs> it's coming, yeah. and it's so glorious, because I remember... Because they, they do it perfectly. They do a scene where you get there and you have to fight the frost enemies before you get the blades. So you have to use your yep. fists. And you're saying, like, God damn, this takes forever. And then you get the blades of chaos. Yeah. And let me tell you, it was just like a warm knife through butter, slicing through those stupid frost enemies yeah. like nothing. And I literally, the first few swings I did of it, my mouth was just down on the floor. And I go, this is fucking awesome! <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Uh, so for... for People who might not know the, the Blades of Chaos are the blades that he that Kratos used in all of the previous games. Um, and so there's these beautifully crafted blades that are on the end of essentially uh, chain uh, you know chain links that are wrapped around his wrists. And so he does this these beautifully uh, executed like twirling moves and spinning moves. And he he like just the the combat mechanics of using the Blades of Chaos is really really pretty oh to God, see. Yeah. Um, and so they use fire, whereas the Leviathan X. Um, it, it's elemental damage is, is through frost um, and so you know you essentially put them on um, and before you leave your cabin Athena appears at your door again and says you're still a monster and he says I know but I'm no longer your monster um, sort of shattering his past saying I know I've done all these things but I'm not going to be held back by my past anymore uh, however violent however monstrous it was um, and then you're on your way to Helheim, where you have just the best time slicing through folks with your Blades of Chaos. But I thought it was actually perfectly timed, because at that point, I had basically all my XP attacks maxed out on, you know, of course, just like waiting to rank up the Leviathan Axe the next yeah. time I got the next Frozen Flame, but I had pretty much maxed out all my basic attacks, all of Atreus' attacks, and I was like, what am I going to do with all these XP points? And they do a great job, and the inventory system when you just have the um, the shield and the the Leviathan Axe and Atreus, that's all these are the only three icons that they show. And then so you have no idea that you're going to get another weapon. Right. Although at one point at the beginning of the game, I remember I was just like going through what the buttons did and I was like, Yeah, it's kinda of funny that the left directional pad button doesn't do anything because it's the only button that doesn't do anything. And then sure enough the left directional pad button switch becomes weapons. the Blades of Chaos button. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it literally becomes the Blades of Chaos button. <laughs> I was like, you son of a bitch, yeah. Corey. You you got me. Yeah. Um, but it was perfectly timed because then you're like, alright, now I got all these new combat mechanics to learn. I got all these new moves I can do. I have a new weapon I can upgrade. I have new moves I can unlock. And oh man, the runic attacks on the Blades of Chaos. I think it's the, the Flight of the Furies. That is my favorite one. It is just... A cavalcade of swings and slams. Yeah. And it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, it is but awesome. How, how much fun is it to just feel like Scorpion or Sub Zero and do the get over? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much also, fun. for the lower le for the lower level enemies, because the Blades of Chaos they can be spun around in a circle. You can essentially spam R one and R two and never be touched. 
Um, there's one yeah. scene in Helheim where you're trying to escape, actually, and you're, and you're on this, like, flying ship, um, and you're being constantly, you know, uh, attacked by these, like, kind of, you know, not, not so strong, smaller, you know, smaller enemies, um, and they couldn't even get close. I was just spamming buttons, and they couldn't even get near me at all. So you finally return to Freya um, with the heart of the Bridgekeeper, which is essentially um, the the creature that lets that sort of moderates people passing to to get into Helheim, and she brings she brings Atreus back to life. Um, and so there is uh, this moment where you kind of wonder, as the player, like is is Kratos going to finally reveal his past to Atreus? Uh, he doesn't. Um, so he really slow plays. Yeah, that. it's a really long <laughs> con. Yeah. Uh, so you finally get the adventure going again. You find your way almost seemingly to the end, right? And it, and again, it's another one of those your princess is another castle moments where um, you encounter uh, Modai again, who uh, Atreus actually kills and pushes off a cliff, and you're like, "Whoa, that was real dark, yeah. kid. You didn't need to do that." Well, that's, yeah, it's because Modai shows up all beat to shit because Thor blamed him for Magni's exactly. death. Exactly. So Thor kicked the shit out of his own kid right. because the other kid died. And then Atreus decides to... Stab him in the throat. You know, just be a little dick. <laughs> yeah. After Kratos was like, nope, he's beaten. Don't exactly. do it. And Atreus disobeys him and slices his throat and literally Spartan kicks him down yeah. a well. <laughs> uh, and then Kratos grabs... Atreus and says, son, there are consequences to killing gods. Um, and that is a big hint for something that will come later in the game. But um, you continue the journey, uh, and then you finally find yourself face to face with Baldur again. And, you know, this is after there, there are a couple moments where you see him and you learn more about his relationship with Freya um, and how much he resents her for taking away the ability to feel. Um, he's she has robbed him of an entire lifetime of feeling, and he's very upset about it. But yeah, you learn more about that because you both like um, when he encounters you again after you you talk to the world serpent again, um, and you're basically going through Tears Temple. Um, Tears Temple is a huge part of the game. Towards the end, you learn a lot about the additional story context in Tears Temple, and then it basically becomes the end game. And so, after you talk to the World Serpent for, I think it's, I think it's like the second time. I think you only talked to him twice. Yeah. So you talk to him the second time, and it's it's funny that in one of those encounters, Mimir mentions that the World Serpent says he recognizes Atreus, which is something we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a nice little tidbit that really flies under the radar at the time, because you're really not thinking of what it could possibly mean. Um, so, like, after you've talked to the World Serpent the second time, you go into Tyr's temple, and all of a sudden you hear somebody blow the horn again. Which which is, as context, the, the, the horn is essentially what summons the World Serpent. Yeah, and but that's the thing is, no one really summons it because it's such an old tongue that no one can speak it. Mimir can speak it because he's all-knowing. So that's very curious as to who actually rang the horn. Yeah. Because I don't think it would be Baldor. Mostly because the World Serpent hates the Acer gods. Yeah. So if Baldor rings it, the World Serpent would look at him and be like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of speculation that it could have been Freya, which, again, hmm. I don't really see how it could have been her. But one of my favorite ones, and we'll talk about this at the very end, is uh, it's part of the end game, And there's a theory about who might have called yeah. it. It has to deal with like time travel and shit. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so once you hear that get called again, then all of a sudden basically the world serpent gets his ass kicked and it's Baldor 
mm-hmm. and during this fight, you, Atreus, and Baldor all get sent back down to Helheim, and that's yeah. where you start realizing a lot of the backstory of Baldor and, and uh, Freya. Yeah, you learn more about their relationship and how much she loves him and wants to protect him, um, like any mother would, um, and how much he resents her for taking away his entire life, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so there's this massive fight, very similar to the first encounter, um, where he... Uh, it's actually really interesting because he switches between essentially frost element and fire elements, you know, forcing you to then switch to be the opposite uh, weapon. So when he's in frost mode, you're using your blades of chaos. When he's in, you know, fire mode, you're using the leviathan axe. And so it's this really intricate, sort intricate sort of dance of a of a fight. And then you know, uh, Atreus again gets really angry and tries to protect you. Um, and Baldur says something along the lines of like, "Okay." your turn and punches him square in the chest as hard as he can and when he did that man i was like like i felt it i was just like yeah you just punch a little kid in the chest dude and you're a god and that probably hurts so much you probably broke his little rib cage um fortunately for atreus um he had a piece of mistletoe arrow which was keeping the clasp um of his um of his quiver in place so earlier in the game freya gives atreus mistletoe arrows and well, no, 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 no. They found mistletoe arrows, and when they show up at a fr- at friends, oh, that's right. She's like, she's like, no, uh, you can't have those. Right, right, right. And so, essentially, Kratos breaks a piece off of a mistletoe arrow and uses it to sort of clasp the quiver together. Uh, fortunately for Atreus, um, well, so there's this actually really interesting moment that I fucking loved. But after Balder punches Atreus in the chest, Kratos grabs Atreus and is like, "Son, you're bleeding," and through coughing and sort of recovering from getting knocked in the chest he says it's not my blood and you look up uh, the camera pans upward towards uh, Baldur and you see him with a piece of mistletoe arrow through his hand in Norse mythology Baldur is killed by a mistletoe arrow sort of getting inspiration from that uh, it essentially robs him of his of his curse the mistletoe arrow makes it so that he can feel again and he gets really excited and he, it's just like this weird almost like erotic reaction where he can feel um and he and because it's so cold he comments on like he, he's freezing and he loves it and that sort of invigorates him um and so there's this massive fight um they go back and forth the the kicker being that he can feel now which means he can die and so um yeah and all the while is in the background screaming at both of you to stop yeah and then she takes control of like the giant stone mason thing, yeah and she like oh my god the scale of that fight was it's so bizarre incredible. yeah there's this gigantic stone mason who you sort of climb around earlier in the game and freya reanimates him because he was dead and he's this massive giant and she's using him essentially as a proxy to fight um to stop you guys from killing each other and kratos is saying no he wants to kill you for robbing him of his life and freya is essentially saying he can kill me it's fine like i i want my son to be happy if that's going to make him feel complete then kill me whatever and then uh you know and then balder is saying like don't get involved i can take care of this you've done enough damage in my life etc etc at the end of the battle at the end of this encounter uh you find yourself watching as Balder puts his hands around Freya's neck and tries to kill her. Stopping her from dying, Kratos comes up behind Balder and snaps his neck. For real this time. He dies, and Freya's very upset because she was willingly going to let her son kill her. Um, she was going to die by the hands of her own child to make him feel whole or complete or happy or whatever. So at that moment, 
some words are spoken she's very upset yeah i believe the phrase i will bring the fires of hell down on something you, like on, something, that? something along those yeah. lines i'm paraphrasing but yeah it wasn't good it wasn't pretty uh, didn't sound like a fun weekend yeah at all in the in the freya household no no it sounded like a little rough essentially picks her son up and she's like i'm gonna hunt you down i'm gonna follow you everywhere you go you will never be able to sleep in peace because of what you've done and then she kind of says something to the tune of, does your son know your past or something? And finally, fucking finally, Kratos spills the beans. He says, I'm from a land called Sparta. Um, I'm a god. Earlier in the game, he does kind of insinuate that he is a god and therefore his son is half god. And so he, there's this big reveal um, about his past. And he's like, I, I've killed many who were deserving and I've killed many who were not. Um, and Atreus kind of takes it on the chin uh, and and at that point, like the the relationship has developed to a point where there's clear love between the both of them, and yeah. um, you see that sort of mask of of stoic manliness start to break down, um, and you see a father behind that, which is a really interesting moment. Well, yeah, one of the biggest moments is when he mentions um, that he killed his father Zeus, and yeah. because there's one of the side missions that you do where you are helping one of the the wayward spirits in the Lake of Nine. And it's basically a father who is trying to find out what happened to his son who had killed him in the past. That's why he was now a spirit. So he's basically saying, can you let me know what happened to my son? And as you're going on this journey, Atreus is asking Kratos, what kind of person would kill their father? Like, who would do that? And Kratos just doesn't say a word. Kratos is like, I don't know. It seems pretty fucked (laughs) up. Am I right? crazy people yeah. out there let me tell yeah. you i wouldn't do that <laughs> me what no what? never um and so <laughs> he, he totally spills the beans and he says i killed my father i killed zeus my father atreus is seemingly okay with it they continue on their journey um and you know fast forward a little bit they finally find themselves with the help of a lot of people brock and sindri and and mimir and uh, the world serpent, they find themselves at the peak of the mountain, or approaching the peak of the mountain in Jotunheim. So they're finally at their goal. And it's this, man, like, the last ten minutes, I, I wish I could just replay forever, because it's so good. So you, you sort of get to the top of this chamber, and you see these stairs sort of leading to the peak. Um, and there's all this art on the walls, um, and it's essentially a mural that is the exact journey you just went on with Atreus. Everything from seeing, you know, encountering the stranger in the beginning to encountering the world serpent to Brock and Sindri to Freya to all these pieces are there um, as they happen in the game. And Atreus is like, wow, they, how did they know the giants painted this? Like, how, how? This is everything we just did. Like, how did this happen? And it's kind of left to interpretation in, in some ways. Um, and then the final panel, which you briefly see, uh, so Atreus is kind of walking towards the door to, to get up to the top of the mountain, and he's saying, like, come on, let's go, you know, we're almost at the end. And just as he's saying that, Kratos is looking behind a big piece of cloth at the last panel of art on the wall, and you see what is presumably um, Atreus holding Kratos' dead body with what looks like serpents coming out of his mouth. And you're asking a lot of questions, um, and we'll we'll get back to it. We're gonna sort of unpack this ending, but they they get to the top of the mountain, they spread the ashes across, you know, in, sort of in the wind, and it's this like beautiful moment, and you finally have this sense of relief, and you're like, wow, oh, this. You look back on this journey, 
Uh, and it's cool because the, the the art that you just looked at forces you to look back on this journey and you're like, holy shit, what a, what a yeah. ride, you know? I thought it was a great reveal that you find out that Faye was more than Kratos knew that she exactly. was. When you find out that she was a giant and Kratos says the line, looks like your mother had some secrets of her own. Right. It, it's really amazing because in all the history of God of War, Kratos has never kind of been... Um, out of the loop on something. Yep. He kind of always gets what people are trying to do, or he understands who they are. And it, it, to be so close to someone and not know such a huge detail of their life, yeah, that's amazing that that went over his head. And then I got to say, because once Atreus finds out he's a god, he gets all, whatever, man, I'm a god, I can do whatever Yeah, he turns into a little like shithead. Yeah. So I can't even imagine what kind of shithead he's going to be now that he knows he's a giant and a god. It's like, I'm a giant god, motherfucker. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you realize that uh, Faye was sort of... Corey Barlog refers to her as the dungeon master of this D&D game, right? She's the yeah. writer. She is the creator of this journey. And she's essentially kind of, in a way, has been following you almost. And this insinuates a lot of things about time and how wonky it is and how it can double back on itself and all this shit. Um, but... You know, throughout the throughout the world, there's a lot of climbing, right? And and when you want to climb something, you'll see these yellow sort of arrows or this yellow paint on the surfaces that are climbable. Um, Corey Barlog has said that that's that's Faye. She painted those. She was directing yep. the journey. She was creating this journey for them. Because that was the that was the tidbit at the beginning of the game that no one realized. It's her handprint on the her tree. Her handprint on the tree that he was cutting. Her down. handprint on the fucking tree. Yeah. And I was like, God damn yeah. it, of course. And so and he, uh, Barlog also said that initially all those surfaces were going to have a yellow hand on them, but they thought that was too over the plate, which I agree. I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, what about Yeah. Because I just looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, that's just that, that indicates a climbable surface. Yeah. Like to- Tomb Raider does it, Horizon did exactly. it. Exactly. Uncharted did it. Yep. So you just overlook it. Like every game does that. Right. And then you realize, holy shit, that even had a point to the narrative. Exactly. Like everything had a reason. It wasn't just arbitrarily thrown in the game. It's absolutely incredible how yeah. they mapped out every little detail. Exactly. Because I, I said I said it to you a couple times where there were so many times during that game where I would have a question like, all right, well, how can they do this? And then right as I'm thinking that Kratos or Atreus ask that question and the game delivers a logical yeah. answer, whether it be from Mimir, Brock, Sindri, or anybody else. And I'm like, God damn, they right. got every question answered. Right. And, and that's a beautiful thing about the game. There are no gaping holes in the narrative and yeah. the plot. You know, the time thing is confusing and I think there is an, there is an answer there. And I think it involves, a lot of the mythos and a lot of the sort of narrative that's involved in the actual Norse mythology, but it, it's yeah. also, it, it also involves traveling between realms. Um, and so, you know, getting back to the story, you sort of spread the ashes and you're sort of walking back and, you know, you have this moment, Kratos finally sort of embraces his son and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, this feels so, so good. What was the, my favorite little scene there at the end when, uh, they're in tears temple and he finds the wine. He's like, this is wine from my old home. Yeah. And they both take a sip, and he just goes, ah. "Yeah." And I just thought that was such a cool, yeah. Movie because I never would have thought I'd see Kratos just enjoying a sip of wine with his son yep. in any of the God of War like lore. Yeah, no. It's and really I, I remember just a, a genuine smile came over my face at that moment, and I think like I because I knew it was coming. Like once he took the sip, I was like, "Ah, oh, he's gonna do an ah." And like when he did it, I did it with him. And I was like, "This is great. I yeah. fucking love this game." <laughs> and. I, I must have watched like four or five interviews with Barlog directly after finishing the game, but he says that was added in last minute because he and his son did that exact thing. 
and he was like yeah, that'd be cool if i it. could if we could put that in the game and a few people were like eh, that's kind of weird and cheesy and he was like just go with it we'll see Rika. and it and it lands perfectly um it really does so they're walking back from the top of this mountain um having sort of completed their journey they're presumably heading home and atreus is commenting on the art that was all over the walls and he was like, yeah, that, that's really amazing that they had our whole journey there. And he's like, but there was one thing that I didn't understand. They kept getting my name wrong. They kept calling me Loki. And then that's when the, the everyone's jaw drops in unison, right? Like that was like... Son of a yeah, bitch, this kid is Loki. Exactly. So <laughs> for those of you who don't know and don't watch any Marvel movies, uh, Loki's the god of mischief. Um, he is in the mythology, uh, the the sort of adopted brother of of odin um i don't know if that's really a part of it here um but loki's the one who kills balder in the mythos he is a huge part of norse mythology and he is the son he's the essentially creation of the giants um and so a huge sort of tip to that uh, a nod to atreus being loki is um sort of hidden a little bit obviously in the name of his mother so uh she's only referred to as Faye from the beginning of the game which um after a little bit of research i discovered is short for laufey which in the norse mythology is the mother of loki um so there was this glaring hint right under our noses from the beginning of the game um which was cool to discover but um yeah. there's a lot of implications that come out of that um especially when you take into consideration what that last panel was um, yeah. So some people think it's Loki has the ability to he's very mischievous, right? Uh, he can sort of morph into animals, which is really interesting. Um, he, in a lot of the mythos and a lot of the translations, he most uh, frequently takes the form of a wolf. Which when Atreus finds out that he's a god, the first thing he asks is, "Can I turn into a wolf?" Um, which is like sort of another little bit of of a nod to who he really is. Yeah. And that was the same thing with the world serpent because yeah. Loki, he births the world, world serpent. Yep. And then when he, the world serpent's like, oh, you look familiar. And it goes into play with um, the theory on who blows the horn at the end. Right. And the theory is it's Loki traveling back in time with Kratos in his arms trying to get the world serpent to help them. Yeah. So it's like while Kratos and Atreus are in there, you know, yep. in Tyr's temple or whatever they're also out there in another exactly type of time run. like it, it, yeah so like i don't know how much gravitas that theory has yeah but yeah with the way they kind of shape shift time and you know they move through realms everything's like different it's not out of the question that it could happen for sure for um, sure but there were all those little 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 nuggets just throughout little the game, breadcrumbs like, yeah and you, they all just went over your head because you're like why would i ever think this he'd be anybody else like, yeah he's clearly atreus loki also has the ability to sort of communicate with other beings, which is hinted at when he can talk to, you know, um, Brock's cattle and, and the world serpent. And so, yeah, there's all these strings. There's all these strings of theory that are connecting different parts of the mythos with the game, with the narrative and the story. Some folks think that last panel is, uh, you know, Kratos was killed by somebody else and Loki's trying to bring him back to life. Some people think it was an accidental murder that Atreus did to his father. So there's all these theories that are sort of spinning and spinning. Um, it could be any one of those things um a really interesting theory and i don't know how it plays into everything is that kratos is actually the world serpent um which would account for the fact that it's all white it has the red stripe and has a beard um sort of going back in time and saying that he recognizes uh loki atreus i'm hearing an interesting theory that kratos is tear oh interesting yeah yeah, yeah. what they're basically saying is like tear you know was beloved and so 
Kratos after you know trying to change his ways he actually yeah. became Tyr. Yeah. And, and again, like you go down the rabbit hole of crazy conspiracy right. theories right. with all of these things, and what we'll get is like a game where none of that is true, but it doesn't yeah. matter. It's fun to speculate in the time. Yeah. Um, so it is cool that we actually have these opportunities now to actually speculate about this stuff in regards to God of War, because we never had any conversations like these yeah. for you know any of the previous entries. It, and it really just opens the door to possibilities, because I really, going into this game, I thought this was like a one-off thing. I had yeah. I, I was like you know they're they're going they're gonna bring it back see how it does, and then when you hear Corey Barlog basically say like you know I've thought about multiple other installments I'm hoping to do more, and now I'm just excited because I think there's so many opportunities not only just in this Norse world but there's so many other mythological worlds that you could implant Kratos into right. and still have a great experience. Yeah, and there's um, in one of the art panels there's a couple different symbols of different kinds of gods they have the, they have the an egyptian god you know a symbol from the egyptian mythos there's um i think a celtic god sort of reference so there's there's definitely the seeds of what could be another game and uh, all throughout this this experience um but yeah the opportunity that it gives us to create like our own headcanon for a game that we've never been able to do that in the past is really awesome and i think it just it just highlights the evolution of god of war it highlights the evolution of cory barlog as a, as a writer and director it it highlights just the growth of the franchise and where it is i mean it's the most 2018 god of war that could have ever existed you know what i mean it's oh, perfect definitely. for its time and that's sort of that's sort of the end of the game um for <laughs> now <Until. laughs> yeah yeah this is my favorite part here because when the game ends you go back to midgard and uh, Mimir mentions, he's like, uh, fair warning, you know, since you've been in other realms, time moves differently when you're in other realms. So Midgard's not going to look the same as you remember. Yeah. And basically what that's saying is you're now going to fight tougher enemies. <laughs> like that's, And there's like uh, some snow because the winters are about to start. It's basically the winters before Ragnarok. Yeah. Because all of the the wheels are in motion for Ragnarok now that Baldur's dead. So, yeah, something I wanted to touch on there. One of the last things that Baldur says as he falls to the ground dead he falls over and he sees a single snowflake fall in front of his face and he just says the word snow um and that's how he dies and so that's hinting at the start of what's called thimble winter which is like the first reckoning of of ragnarok um so i thought that was a that was a pretty interesting thing honestly i think god of war ragnarok has a great ring to for it, sure i wouldn't be surprised if that's the next yeah. game <laughs> um but i love how once you get back to midgard mimir lets you know all right, it looks a little bit different now, uh, but hey, you can do what you want. If you want to go home, you can go home, but if you want to explore the world, go explore the world. So that right there, without really telling you to go home, is kind of telling you to go home. Yeah. Um, you need to do that. If you've finished the game and you haven't gone home yet, go home. Just go do it. Pause. Just pause the spoiler cast right here. Go back home and rest in your bed, and then once you see what happens, you resume the podcast. All right, I'll give you two seconds, and then we're, we're going to resume talking about this. Motherfucking Thor. Yep. Like you go home, you rest. It says three years later, lightning is going crazy. You wake up and you're like, "What's happening?" You open the door, you see a cloaked figure with lightning just all over the place, and Kratos just screams, "Who are you?" Yeah. And doesn't say a word, doesn't lift his hood. All that happens is a gust of wind blows his cloak just enough so you can see Mjolnir. Yeah. And it's motherfucking Thor. Yeah. And I thought it was amazing because 
throughout the entire game, you hear so much about Odin, you hear so much about Thor. I'd say they're probably mentioned more in this game than any other character. Yeah. But you never encounter them. Right. And, like, I remember when I got to that last battle with Baldur, I was like, oh, shit, this is it. This is the final battle. We're not going to see Thor or Odin here. And that was my first inclination. I was like, we're going to get more games. And then once I saw this scene, we're for sure getting more games. Absolutely. And I can't wait. But it just, like, opened the door to so many theories. Because if Thor's really pissed off that Kratos killed his kids, why the fuck did it take him three years to find him? Yeah. They knew where he was. Yeah. I'm thinking Thor is going to Kratos and basically trying to use him to prevent Ragnarok. It, yeah, it could be It could be like a bait and switch. It could be trying to get us to think that Thor is there because, like Kratos said, there are consequences to killing gods, and Thor is that consequence. Um, but he could be there for, diff- for, diff- for different reasons, you know? Yeah, and and it's and it's interesting because it's different than the Thor we see in the Marvel universe. It's different than Thor's we have you know been familiar with. Yeah, this with. Thor is a dick. Yeah, and and he's like <laughs> much smaller, which I think is an interesting theme that plays. Like gods look like men and women. You know what I mean? Giants don't always have to be giant in size. Um, and so you're just left with that. And then the screen goes black, and it says Kratos and Atreus wake up, and Atreus talks about a dream he had where he saw Thor. And so, yeah, and that's what you're sort of left with in terms of the base narrative, the base game. And it's just a fucking ride, man. It's crazy. It, it's it's a game that I, I think has changed what I expect from games um, in 2018 and AAA titles. And, I, and we talked about it on the Relationships podcast that we released last week, but it forces us to think about the relationships, especially, you know, from a personal standpoint, as a young man, I think about becoming my dad and i think about like what the implications of that is and and this game grapples with exactly that and so like this game is just it it has created such a relatable kratos and a relatable atreus that would have been impossible in the early 2000s when when god of war really started taking off um but what a what a absolutely magnificent game oh yeah because i we had mentioned it in the past where it really felt like um an evolution not only in kratos but in gaming as a whole yeah like, back then, when I first started playing God of War, I was, you know, early teens, and that was exactly what I was looking for. Some action-packed, fast-paced game, um, riveting combat, yeah. large-scale fight scenes. Like, and, that, was, and that's what the industry the... wanted, too. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And now, But now, we don't want that. We don't want some, you know, 10 to 12-hour experience with Kratos. We want something that's deeper, because... Yeah, the games were fun to play, but no one could relate to the guy. I mean, yeah. he straight up was just going on an insane vengeance journey that he literally says himself never led to any type of fulfillment, but he just kept going because right. he just felt like he had to do it. And so this go around, not only could you relate to Kratos at a lot of times, um, because like I remember he would tell you know Atreus to do something, Atreus would just flat out ignore him or not do it. And then wonder why something went wrong. And I could just remember like, yeah, plenty of times my dad would be like, hey, don't do that. And then I go do it because I'm a stupid kid. Right. And sure enough, dad was right. Yep. And so many times yep. you see that that happens. And then at that moment where Atreus is just acting like a little punk, you're like, damn, I know I've acted like that in my life. For sure. So it was amazing how they make it so you can relate to both of them at different times. Yeah. But not just the relationship between those two, like the familiar relationships throughout the entire game are incredible. The Brock and Sindri side story is absolutely magnificent how basically atreus and kratos while they're getting going on their bonding journey they bring back these two long lost brothers who hated each other and they reconnect them and 
it's absolutely beautiful. Like they still make their little snide remarks at each other, but by the end of the game, their relationship is a thousand times better than it was at the beginning. Right. You see how Freya reacts with Baldor, how she'll literally let her own son strangle the life out of her if it means he's happy. Yep. And then she's devastated when Kratos prevents that wish from happening. Um, it's just one of those, it's just another powerful moment where you sit back and like, oh my God, like what, you know, what lengths would some family members go to just to ensure the smallest semblance of happiness in their right. kin or their sibling or something along those lines. So it was really just a well done feat all around For because sure. you, while you're so focused on Kratos and Atreus, all these side characters around you are having their own very deep narratives unfold while the, the main story unfolds. Right, so right. really just a tribute to Corey and the entire team at Sony Santa Monica because my God, like they, they turned over every stone and made sure everything was going to weave to their exact endpoint, And it was perfect. Definitely. Yeah. It's just the, the, the narrative um, was so impactful uh, in a way that a lot of other games wouldn't have even been able to get close to, I think. And so, yeah, I'm just really grateful we're in this, like, I feel like we're in the renaissance of gaming. I feel like we're in the second golden age of video games, and this game is, is a testament to that. And it's going to change the standards for what AAA games are. Um, it's going to change what we demand from our games. And just what a work of passion. I mean, like, we all saw the reaction that Corey Barlog had reading those note, reading the scores from... Um, you know, the reviews and like this game obviously meant a lot to him and that's why it came out the way it did. So yeah, if, if we missed anything, let us know if, if there's something you want to talk about, um, in the next episode of the podcast, or if you just want to banter about God of War with us, definitely reach out. You can find us on Twitter as always at Ombra underscore gaming on Instagram at Ombra gaming. And you can give us a call at three, four, seven, five, zero, nine, five, six, two, zero. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this special spoiler cast of God of War. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure. This was a blast. It has been. Yeah. What a great game. And I'm still going to go back and play. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not done. I'm actually thinking about Never going done. another playthrough on uh, the hardest difficulty, but maybe give it a week or so before I feel up for it. That sounds rough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so with that, folks, as always, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, we appreciate you and we will talk to you very soon. This way, boy. Slow down, boy. 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 Look at me. Look at me, boy. Boy. Inside, boy. Boy. Beneath the floor. Boy. Boy. Here. Boy. Boy. You are in your head, boy. And we will go home, boy. No place for a boy. Come, boy. Now, boy. Come, boy. 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 Boy.